$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a legend, drummer, and author from AOD, Dave Scott Schwartzman, is on the show. He is... Part of the legendary band AOD, as I said, and also the author of the brand new, fantastic history of AOD. If it's Tuesday, this must be Walla Walla, the wacky history of Adrenaline OD. More on that in one second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is from my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Damien. There's a YouTube page, a TikTok page, a Facebook page, and an Instagram page, all for this podcast, at Turned Out a Punk on those respective platforms. And there's Turned Out a Punk videos that I put up and all sorts of stuff. Whenever I find time to kind of put stuff together. And same with Tristan. He's also got other things in life to put together. But we find time to post on those things, so follow those. If you want to support the show, you can support the show by letting your friends know about this podcast. Um, and you can also support me by heading over to the band I play in's website, fuckedup.cc. You also find fucked up on all those social media platforms, uh, even though we're blocked on a lot of them from uh, sending stuff anyway. But that's a separate conversation. For, that's for a fucked up podcast, not turn into punk. But you can head over to fuckedup.cc and find out about all the cool stuff we got going on in that band, if I do say so myself, because we are going on tour with the gods, Super Chunk along the West Coast in the new year. And then we are also putting out a bunch of records, constantly putting out records and, and T-shirts. And we've got some charity auctions for test presses. Find find it all over at fuckedup.cc, I think. I, I, don't, I don't go to the website too often myself, but I think it will be all covered over there. That's it. All right, on to today's show. As I said off the top, the legend Dave Schwartzman is on the show today from AOD, Adrenaline OD from New Jersey. New Jersey gods, I would go so far as to say. like They are a band 
that really unites worlds. And I knew this going into reading this book, but reading Dave's book, you totally get that sense. And even more so about all the sort of disparate worlds of not just punk, because it's also kind of veers off into metal, uh, underground culture that they link up. There are fantastic stories about like the Misfits and Metallica and No Effects and Agnostic Front. It's wild stories, stories that I didn't even know. And I thought I knew a couple stories. Uh, I learned a lot from this book. It's a, a real fun read and goes through like every stage of this band. And uh, they are a band that you can kind of tell the story of 80s underground music post-hardcore through AOD and into the metal world and sort of the pre-Nirvana kind of grunge world. They they don't really make it to that post-Nirvana era, but they do kind of tell the tale of where that world comes from in this book, in a way. Anyway, I, buy the book. Buy the book, listen to AOD, and sit back, relax, and enjoy Dave Scott Schwartzman, Unturned Out a Punk. <laughs> Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Well, Pleasure I'm a, to be here. Well, I, I didn't tell you this off air, but I'm a huge fan of your book. I think it's a fantastic read. And I think... Oh, thank you. Well, I think for people like myself, you know, fans of this music, Adrenaline OD is a fascinating band because as much as you are a band very proudly of New Jersey, you're also weirdly a band kind of without... Uh, a scene that kind of ties you to any one place. So you kind of wind up in a lot of weird different places and give an overview of, of punk throughout sort of the eighties in America. I tried to give the audience a uh, complete bird's eye view of what it was like to be in a punk rock band back then. And, you know, I, yeah, I, I tried to make it light because, you know, AOD was a very funny band and we had some very, very funny times on the road. So it's, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm happy. It turned out to be a good read. It's funny too, because you are a band that I remember when I first got into hardcore, um, you know, like there was always the older person sort of cynicism from the generation above me on the bands mm -hmm. that I was getting into. And the one that was always recommended to me was AOD. And it seems like, AOD is a band that is is perfectly at home with, you know, no effects, as you and me were talking about off air, but also at the same time, Metallica, but also at the same time, like Agnostic Front and the Misfits and sort of this real heavy New York thing and New Jersey thing that was also happening at the same time. Like you guys are a band that could kind of exist in all these different places simultaneously. We were an anomaly like that. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that, you know, when all these scene rivalries were going on, we weren't part of that. We, were, we weren't part of the New York, Boston, New York, D.C. rivalry. So we got along with people from D.C. We were part of the original New York hardcore scene, so we got along with them. And we got along great with, like, you know, bands like the FUs and DYS, you know. Um, we had such a diverse amount of friends. Like you said, we could be friends with somebody like NoFX, but we were also really good friends with, like, the Battalion of Saints, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Gnostic Front, people that, you know, a lot of people would be just scared to hang out with, you know, but we got along really good with everybody. We're one of those uh, Sweden bands. We're like <laughs> completely neutral. Well, you talk about going to that international hardcore Olympics show in L.A. Yeah. At that point or playing with BGK or, or you know, your friendship you kind of develop with these bands and stuff like that. Like, and I find it so fascinating because, you know, as I've gone on, I've kind of like began to look more at 
punk and hardcore as being almost like religions in a way. Mm. It, it, it holds importance to people. Yeah. And, and in the same way, Fat Mike has a completely different definition about what punk and hardcore is than Roger Murray would have than right. Doyle from the Misfits would have. And like all these people have different definitions yet you guys somehow seemingly fit into everyone's different definition of it. Oh, that's, that's a good thing, I guess, you know, um, we were all fans of the music. So, you know, it wasn't like we we're just trying to be in a band to be famous. We never thought we'd get anywhere, let alone playing any shows. And, uh, you know, we came out of like the first, you know, punk scene. We we weren't automatically just got into hardcore. The band that we were in prior, well, actually three of the guys that were in AOD, it was uh, called the East Patterson Boys Choir. And they started in like 79, I think. So they were on the tail end of the 70s wave of punk. And that's what we all listened to before, you know, stuff like Black Flag and the Germs started coming our way. You know, we were into Dead Boys and Dickies and the Damned and the Dictators and every other band with a D in it. <laughs> well, but, uh, and, well and, I, and I guess like this leads me to the question that I start every episode with. And I kind of know the answer because you do get into it in the book. But Dave, how did you get in a punk to remember the first time you ever came across the term? Um, it was strictly through my sister. I had been listening to just like every other punk kid. The gateway drug was like Kiss, Alice Cooper, Blue Oyster Cult you know, things like that. And um, I had this weird circumstance where when I was about yeah, 13, 14 years old, I got a call one day and some lady wanted to speak to my dad and it turned out it was his daughter. And I, I have a brother, but we never knew that my dad was married before and that there was a half sister someplace. So uh, we met her uh, first time she was in New York City. She was going to see Led Zeppelin. She grew up in Miami, so it wasn't like we were close and or see each other a lot. She would only come up for some of these shows. In the early days, it was uh, like Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. You know, and over time, you know, I realized, oh, you know, she's probably a groupie, <laughs> and that's exactly what she was. But on one of the later trips, uh, she had gotten into punk rock, probably about 78, 79, and uh, she came up to see the Clash this time. And, you know, she looked completely different. You know, she's her uh, blonde hair is now like platinum white and she's wearing like zebra, you know, jackets and funny sunglasses. And from there, she started sending me some of the local records that were coming out of Miami for bands like uh, The Eat and The Reactions and The Cichlids. And um, I was getting like 45s uh, from her and then. She sent me like the first Clash album and that really, you know, changed things for me. And uh, the next time she came up was when the Clash were playing in New Jersey and she got me in. And then I got to see the Clash like first row center. So it was it was an amazing, amazing life changing experience. You know, so that's that's really how I started getting into punk rock. She used to write for a fanzine called Mouth of the Rat, which later uh, became Rat Cage Records when the owner, Dave Parsons, moved to New York and started putting out records by Agnostic Front and the Beastie Boys and stuff. But she was connected to all those people. So I even met Dave Parsons like way before any of those New York hardcore kids did because I met him through my sister when he came up for The Clash. You know, and this is before awesome. the hardcore stuff happened. 
That's amazing. That first wave of singles she's sending you, all that Florida stuff is so fascinating because it is. Yeah. And it's even, I find this in the book when you start talking about playing with Maggot Sandwich. And I think the first comp you guys are on, Maggot Sandwich is on that comp too. It mm-hmm. feels like Florida punk has like an extra layer of of weird, cool weirdness to it. Yeah. Early stuff. Yeah. I mean, listen, you had to be pretty uh, radical to be a punk rocker in Florida or Texas. I mean, look at that Texas scene. There was a gay communist they were starting punk bands in texas that's yeah. ballsy man <laughs> yeah well, that, that's ballsy i think they're right because it's like the more there's places where people needed this kind of more in a way like obviously yeah. everywhere but you talk about it later on when you're going down and playing with neon cross christ in atlanta and there's like sections of the highway that are owned by the ku klux klan yeah yeah and, going through the deep south that was yeah you know you had to be mindful of things like that back then my mom was like so worried about me going through the deep south and looking too Jewish. But then like I shaved my head and then she was really freaked out. <laughs> well, I was like, well, at least I'm, nobody's going to really think I'm Jewish anymore. <laughs> just going to think I'm some like miscreant. You know, I, I looked like uh, Howdy Doody and Mr. T combined. <laughs> it, it does feel like this is um though like in a, a period where the bands are doing this for the first time like obviously bands would always be on the road but it was a very different sort of thing than bands yeah. did post black flag post doa right right um black flag were the ones that were like the johnny apple seeds for most of the east coast scene you know they would come through and they'd have their own sound system so they were able to play like halls or whatever place they could set up and uh they played a lot I mean, they were always coming through and uh, that, you know, it really gives bands that are smaller the idea that, hey, maybe we can do this, too. You know, maybe it's not impossible. I mean, it took us a long time just to even put out a record because it it seemed like the financing was just so hard to get back then. You know, you couldn't record a record like in your your home on on a computer. You know, it's like there was so much we had to learn. You know, and we messed up on a lot of things along the way, too. We made a lot of mistakes, but that's what happens, you know? Yeah. Going back to your sister, was she into bands like Milk and Cookies? And, like, did she know, like, Lydia Lunch and other girls that were kind of on the scene back then? Um, I don't really know. Uh, like, you talk about the the band from Brooklyn, Milk and Cookies? Like the power yeah. Milk and Cookies, yeah. They kind of, like, they were been, I guess, like, the direct precursor almost to that New York thing, it seems. Like, the New York. Yeah, thing. because she grew up in Miami, I don't think she had too much access to that that scene you know mm-hmm. um her she was really into that local miami scene there was a lot going on back then you know uh there was a place called the agora ballroom and it was also uh chrysalis studios where like the dead boys went and recorded their album and she hung out with them when they were recording the album you know so there's there was always something going on in that area yeah know? absolutely yeah and it feels like there's like that sort of pre-punk uh, stuff that was happening there's like the the sort of storied groupie scene out in los angeles around that time too with mm-hmm. around rodney's english disco and a lot of the people that oh, were yeah. foundational to like the early punk scene yeah Lily, lydia lunch when she talked about it when she was on the podcast being kind of like part of this sort of groupie thing before she discovered this music and this punk thing right right i mean you know think about how early she started she was just a kid with uh teenage jesus and the jerks you know yeah. it was a long time ago you know and and that was such 
cutting edge music for its day, like the minimalism. That wasn't something that, you know, uh, was part of the tri-state area, you know, uh, radio stations playlist back then. You didn't hear a lot of uh, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks on uh, the Springsteen stations, you know? Well, that's why New York's so fascinating to me at that moment where you're kind of getting into this stuff and first discovering this music because it hasn't really been kind of codified and, and broken into subgenres in the way it would be a few years later. So there's still yeah. stuff that sounds like suicide existing with stuff that sounds like Blondie and, you know, the dots or the mumps and right. the mad. Well, that's why I loved the original beginnings of the New York hardcore scene because there was no blueprint. Every band that was on the scene back then, Kraut, uh, False Prophets, um, The Mob, um, Reagan Youth, um, The Undead, everyone had a different sound and a different style, you know, and, and different influences. So, you know, it, it was too early for things to get generic back then, which, mm -hmm. uh, of course, it eventually happened, you know, years later. But um, it, it was much more interesting and uh, a little bit more arty of a scene, you know. Yeah, but, you definitely uh, get that. You definitely get that there's like, you look at the bands like the Stimulators or the Mad or or all this sort of stuff in addition to the bands that you kind of mentioned where you do have kids that are openly gay. You have a lot of women involved in it. Like it does feel like uh, it isn't sort of like what's normally taken up as sort of macho hardcore or what. Right, right. I think, um, you know, the Bad Brains came to town and just like blew everybody's minds. And like once the Bad Brains happened, Everybody changed, you know? I mean, you started getting harder and harder bands. It became a lot more macho, you know, later on, a lot more fights at shows, you know? But um, the Bad Brains did change the entire landscape of, uh, you know, my area. You know, once we saw them, it's like, well, how do we be that good, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it seems like they had that effect also when they started touring. Like everywhere they went, people after they saw them were like, "Okay, we got to do things slightly differently or or step it up." Yeah, I mean, first time I saw them, I had only heard the Pay to Come single. And uh, you know, I saw them at Max's Kansas City the first time. They were wearing the suits and they had the short hair and man, that it was it was just like somebody just like hit a lightning bolt into the fucking building and it just exploded. And for like, you know, 35, 40 minutes, it was just like, you know, I thought the clash were the shit after I saw them. And now I'm watching something that is on such a different level on energy. I'm like, wow, holy shit. You know, it yeah. was really one of those holy shit moments, you know? It's also interesting. I rewatched America's hardcore not too long ago. And there's mm -hmm. that, there's a story in it that Henry Rollins kind of tells, and it's almost become like one of the great fables of, of punk where the teen idols do that tour out to the West coast and they go to a circle mm -hmm. jerk show and they see, you know, the rise of West coast, hardcore, the organized sort of gang pit activity and right. kids wearing the boots. And Henry straight up says like, we kind of brought that back to DC. And then you have the stories of, you know, DC and Boston coming to New York and there being sort of fights at first, and then eventually New York gets a lot tougher out of this. Yeah. It's it's interesting to kind of see that, you know, like you're talking about the original version of hardcore kind of gets supplanted almost by this like 
uh, reinterpretation of West Coast hardcore that kind of I was I, I was at a lot of those early shows that the DC kids came to, like Black Flag at Irving Plaza and Circle Jerks at Irving Plaza. And uh, they were very hard on the dance floor, man. They were not there to, they were really looking to hurt some people, you know? And uh, I remember I met like one guy from DC. His name was Jake. I don't know if he was in a band or anything, but he was a really big dude. He was like 6'3 and had like a big chain around his, his belt and he's wearing a leather jacket. And he's like, just stay with me, kid. You'll be okay. <laughs> that's what i did i stayed behind him the whole night <laughs> but there is that yeah there's that thing that kind of happens with hardcore where it does get more violent and it does get you know a little more aggro and and um yeah it just because it's, it's an aggressive form of music you know it, the whole point of it is to get all that crap out of you you know screaming out slamming out do it you know do what you want to make you know, to get this release, you know, so it is, you know, the music itself is aggressive. The lyrics in many cases are aggressive. A lot of the people sometimes are aggressive. Some of these kids came from bad homes. Some came from no homes, you know, you had kids in the New York scene that were actually street kids, you know? Yeah. Like I, I, oh, I always felt weird coming, you know, around some of these kids and going back to my, you know, suburban house afterwards, you know, because uh, I knew that some of these kids were actually just living outside. Well, yeah, because it is this sort of great economic equalizing place where it doesn't matter where you come from in terms of your financial background, but at the same time, it does always matter where you come from. Like you're talking yeah. about, if you have a lot of money, you can put out a record. You can right, right. have access to these resources or, you know, it, it's interesting. And, you know, by the same nature, like a lot of these kids, I imagine in the early days were going to these shows to try and escape the violence that they were kind of seeing around them yeah for for a lot of us i mean you know living in new jersey and being into punk rock you got picked on a lot you know it's like we live in an area in new jersey you know where it was very much a, a guido mentality if you want to call it that you know the the dudes with the chains and the uh and the wife beater shirts and the hair greased back and uh they they'd attack me in packs you know like kill the punk rockers hey yo <laughs> You know, but uh, that, you know, I, I've, I've been chased through shopping malls, you know, me and my friends have been chased through town, you know, it, you know, it's funny now, like you walk around and you see all these kids with colored hair and tattoos and piercings and nobody gives them a second look, you know, it's like, you have no idea what it was like to be like that back in the early eighties, you know, those people, it, it was a threat to people. It actually was a threat to their way of life, you know, to see somebody like that, you know, and they, they'd like, you know, it. <laughs> and also it felt like it was a lot more, even by the time I was getting into it year, a few years later, the walls were a lot higher back then in terms of like the things that divided these scenes and like slight differences made all the difference. Like yeah. it was like, I find it fascinating looking at New Jersey, like the fact that, at least to me as an outsider observer, there's almost like different punk scenes happening simultaneously. Like there's, and maybe this develops over time, but there's like the buy our records kind of scene of bands. Right. There's the mother records kind of scene of bands. Correct. There's like the feelies kind of world of bands. And then there's like almost like the mental abuse, I guess, urinal records kind of world. I guess Rogers from there too, in New Jersey as well. 
Yeah, yeah, he's from uh, northern New Jersey. Actually, he grew up in Passaic, the town right over from where I grew up. And uh, New Jersey is pretty big. A lot of people don't realize it. And we kind of break it up into three sections. There's like northern New Jersey, which is like people that went to the New York shows. There's central New Jersey, which was like the New Brunswick area, which had a lot of shows. And then that also encompassed like the, the shore crowd, like all those um, other records bands that you were talking about. And then South Jersey had City Gardens in Trenton, which was also part those kids went to the Philly shows. So it's kind of like three scenes in one. And being a band from New Jersey, we were able to, you know, play the state many times over. So it wasn't always like you were playing the same place, which is kind of neat. Mm-hmm. But would there be a lot of interaction between those Mother Records bands? They don't seem to come up too much in the book. Um, they, It's weird. that Those bands were like an island unto themselves. Um, it wasn't until later that we all started kind of co-mingling. I think um, Jacko, who was a singer for Fatal Rage, was probably like our first friend from that scene. And then uh, Russell from the band Underdog, and he was in Murphy's Law. Child abuse, um, too, right? Was in. Yeah, correct, right. And uh, you know, I, I'd say it's it's weird. Everybody's got their guard up when you first meet somebody, you know, especially back then. And I think that everybody's guards were up when we first met each other. And it took, uh, you know, some hanging out and seeing that we're all cool people to to actually be friends. And, you know, we'd, we'd have parties with those guys later on, you know? So. It's also interesting as time goes on and there becomes fewer of you standing around and the island gets smaller and smaller. You end up standing beside people you didn't know you were going to be standing beside. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, one thing uh, about... AOD, which is probably the same with a lot of punk bands from our area, we have a long, long list of dead friends, you know, uh, and it started early. You know, it's like you know, my my mom lives in a in a retirement center. I have more dead friends than she does, you know, and it's because that New York scene that we were a part of. Also, those early punks, they really got into the hard drugs and it killed off a lot of them. You know, yeah. and, uh, you know, it, it's what happens. You know, I stayed away from that shit. I, I was I was straight edge back then, but um, I had a girlfriend and this wasn't written about in the book, but uh, I, I was in a 10 year relationship, living relationship with a really bad heroin addict. And when I met her, she was part of the punk scene. I, I thought, you know, I'm straight edge. I'll fix it. Not a problem. You know, I had no idea what heroin does to a person, you know, mm. and it was like 10 years of some shit, man. <laughs> you know, and there's just so many people that, that needlessly got into that. And a lot of it was the lure around Johnny Thunders, you know, for a lot of those early punk rockers, they, they got into that whole, this is what punk is supposed to be. You go out a show, you get as fucked up as possible. No pun intended. And this is, uh, you know, this is what happened with a lot. That's why when the early hardcore scene started in New York, you weren't seeing a lot of the older punks come to these shows. They were either on drugs, too arty for this crowd, or died. You know, mm-hmm. so the that stimulators crowd that was going to stim shows that was like, you know, late 79, early 80 around there. Um, they were young kids that were starting to go to those shows, 
you know, because the old people stopped coming, you know? Yeah. So it became our, that's how, that's how the whole youthful hardcore scene kind of started. The old people just kind of died off and got into drugs or went away or, or had families, you know? It's like, as, as somebody that was really interested in like the history of punk like you, I wish there was more older punks on that scene to talk to about the old days because I'm fascinated by that shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Anything that happened before my era, my era, I'm fascinated with. But there weren't a lot of people, you know? There weren't a lot of people that were over, you know, 25 or 30 back then, you know? It's it's morbidly fascinating to look at how opioids, heroin in particular, it's so baked into punk from the very beginning, even like proto-punk, right? Like you look at, you know, stuff by the Velvet Underground and there's almost, yeah. even when it's giving you the reality, there's still a romanticizing of it that kind of happens. And Well, in my hometown of Clifton, um, we had a band you might have heard of from, they were considered a New York City band, but they were really from my town. They were called The Violators. Yeah, they put absolutely. out a song called New York Ripper. And they were really influenced by that whole Sid Vicious, Johnny Thunder scene. And again, it's like this whole contingent of heroin acts like popped up in my town. You know, the singer eventually died, you know. Yeah, but, it happened. Uh, it's still to this day, though. It's like it's it's it, once again, it's morbidly fascinating that it's still like I still lose friends to this sort of thing that by now there's enough cautionary tales but yeah exactly exactly and but it's like you said earlier it's like we're all drawn to this because we need it and a lot of times that's because there's trauma and you like that can cause violence in some cases it can also cause self-destructive behaviors and sure escapism you know yeah and there's like a a distrust of authority and this sort of like Johnny Thunders, Sid Vicious, Darby Crash, Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, but it's, yeah, you're right. It's just something that does not seem to go away and it starts very early. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I've had some friends that even like tried to dabble in it and like within like a day or two, they were completely, how the hell do I get off this? You know, and, uh, it's a it's just one of those things like knowing what you know about like why would you even want to try it mm-hmm. why you know i don't get it anymore you know but then you got to wonder if these cautionary tales also become part of the romance of it too like that's I probably just, it maybe i'll get a little bit of what made made johnny thunders great if i tried just a little bit of this and i won't get all the problems and well you know, with, with like the New York area, you know, because it was so prevalent with heroin back in the day when uh, they would talk in the news about some strain that was killing people. There were people lining up trying to find that drug because they thought it was so pure. You know, it's like people, yeah. were dead, you know, it's the same thing with fentanyl now. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a nightmare scenario. And to see friends still wind up getting sucked into it it's uh yeah it's just this this great tragedy that's associated with this thing it is did you uh like i guess going back to you know slightly more cheery topics did you ever see the mad i never did but paul from aod did he had seen them at max's kansas city and they show in before they play this video that uh screaming mad george had made of like somebody like 
pulling out her eyeball and then like all this crazy, crazy, like, uh, you know, uh, special effects that he was doing and it made our singer nauseous and he had to go and throw up in the Max's bathroom because of it. <laughs> I still make fun of him to this day. I never got to see them, though. I wish they did. They're a cool band. We were on the New York Thrash comp with them, too, you know? Yeah, that comp is such a legendary document. Like, it's one of the all-time great records. Like, I feel like if it had come out on vinyl back then, especially, it would be kind of like on even revered on another level. But I think because it was on a tape, it somehow got around more. Yeah, I'm I'm just glad it didn't come out on eight track or really would have fucked things up, you know. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's like you know, you know, now you, you never think about like putting out a major compilation on cassette only, you know, that's that's nutty. <laughs> but back then, I guess it you know financially worked for him, you know. Well, there's a lot of great cassettes on there too, and he was putting out stuff like once again, like that just is so much wider than Capital H hardcore. Right, uh, where he's putting out like Glenn Bronco records and Richard. Right, Hale right. Uh, James Chance. Yeah. yeah, they had a lot of good stuff on there. Yeah, a lot of fantastic stuff, and it and it is something that got it got like really well distributed, right? Like it was all over the world. Yeah, yeah, it it did very well. I mean, New York Thrash is pretty much our entry point into the world, and as soon as that happened it, it made everything so much easier for us getting shows you know getting people to distribute our record you know it, it really got out there and it helped us a lot yeah there's and it feels like around then as well there's a lot of those diy tape comps like you guys are on one super early on as i said with uh maggot sandwich mm -hmm. and d cry i think's on that comp too and it, it felt like there was like with punk rock there there obviously is an international network but with hardcore it's really when it starts getting established and tape trading circuits and mrr and it really changes yeah the yeah especially worldwide too you know it, we were getting probably more mail from places like germany in 84 than we were from the u.s you know and uh even our our first record got bootlegged over there you know <laughs> Because it wasn't getting the distribution. So they're like, well, somebody's got to do it, you know? Yeah, but, uh, it still happens today with German, with Germany. Yeah, Germany, yeah, yeah. It, it definitely, yeah, it does become like a an international network. And you talk about going to the MRR house at one point in the book when you're talking about going to the Bay Area and, and kind of like mm -hmm. Tim Yohannan. And, and this is obviously a very small scene that there's not – a ton of you guys that are part of this scene at that time, but you think about the impact MRR had internationally, where I've talked to people from Indonesia that talk about that being the foundation of their scene, or, you know, you talk about that getting to Australia or, or just the international network that Max and rock and roll helped foster in hardcore. They pretty much were like, um, like an encyclopedia of punk rock for for people that are getting into it you know the those scene review reports and record reviews were how you would find out about bands you know and, and what was going on in the scene and it got around pretty well back in those days you know they had a good underground distribution network and um they're they're good people i had a, i had a a great time every time we hung out with them you know and I, I was lucky enough to be uh you know i started off as a scene reporter for jersey and then i got my own column after a while so that was fun and uh yeah i missed i missed him i miss his awful disgusting record collection with all the tape over it he had green duct tape on the edges of every record he ever owned 
And I'll never forget, like, looking through some of his records. And, you know, he's got, like, the first Necros record. He's got, like, the Misfit stuff. And it's all covered in green duct tape. And I was like, oh, oh God. <laughs> You know, it's like it's like writing your name on the cover of every like really rare record in Sharpie, you know? <laughs> well, it's 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 the sort of thing that I find so fascinating about Max Rock and Roll and this philosophy of like trying to decommodify punk and hardcore, like to mm -hmm. try and strip it of all that sort of edifice and get it down to like sort of this like utilitarian tool of the proletariat to to entertain and to educate right right i mean they and, had some ways it backfired them on them in some areas you know um it spurned you know uh people that didn't agree with their politics and you know there was a little rebellion back in the day but you know i i always looked at you know maximum rock and roll is like flip side was like great but they seem more local to the la area maximum rock and roll really covered the entire world you know yeah and uh now that would be a lot easier to do with a guy you know a uh a computer blog or something but back in those days they actually had, had to print that stuff up all the time and get it out there and you know it's that's a lot of work it was a lot of work people don't realize how much work it was well and that's what i love is that there's sort of this like like-mindedness philosophy to this being an international music scene like you said Flipside is very much to me it's a, a very important magazine and, and changed music but it's very much a keeping of a tradition of music magazines and, and the function of a music magazine right i think max rock and roll feels like yeah it was like about fostering this international community and it's it's obviously tim uh jeff bale jello right. afra i think Pushead Root stuff. Schwartz. Like, yeah yeah exactly like these people that were and then they attracted more people from all over the world like yourselves that were like not necessarily just looking at this as being a music but looking at this as being something larger and a global thing yeah yeah i mean for me i always knew that this was going to be something that encompassed the rest of my life a lot of people you know they got into it for a fad they got out of it but you kind of knew who those people were you know mm -hmm. the ones that really love to go record shopping and really have the thirst for knowledge about this shit we're all still into it you know yeah and it's fascinating how early that is established like the idea of like what is a hardcore kid versus like a punk rock kid and the idea of like yeah. a hardcore, like you said a record collector or someone that's has friends that live all over the world because you trade tapes or trade records with people that exist in other places and just things that people around you in high school could never begin to understand like just oh, absolutely, so absolutely. Far out of the realm for most people yeah absolutely you know I, I was able to get a lot of kids into my high from my high school into punk rock because we did our first show at a battle of the bands at my high school yeah and i think that it set a lot of kids that would probably never have gotten into punk rock on the course of punk rock which yeah i did something good <laughs> you know absolutely when you and you do see that like you have certain high schools certain scenes where there's a ton of kids that get into stuff and it's yep. always fascinating to me because yeah i think it maybe takes a good band like you, yourselves for people to get behind or something because i was not able to have that success in my yeah experience. <laughs> converting people we we had um actually a few bands that came out of like like sacred denial came out of my school um 
let's see, there was a band called No Democracy. It was a band called Suburbicide that was on the Meat House compilation that also came out of my high school. Oh. So like some of them actually went on to do some stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to actually ask you, um, and now I'm blanking on the name of it, but there's that label that was done by, I believe, Mike from Ween or Dean from Ween. And it was like, Ween's on the tape, John Worcester's band, Psychotic Norman's on the tape, Social Decay is on one of the tapes, uh, comp tapes. And it feels like that's okay, another that's scene. Yeah, that's that's like the uh, South Jersey uh, into the Pennsylvania area scene. So I'm not really too sure about that one. It's so fascinating when you like break down like who's in these shows and in these tiny little club spaces at the time, like be it people from Ween to Rick Rubin with Hose to Moby with Vatican Commandos to you know, and, it, and it's weird because like all three of those people you mentioned, I remember them all from shows. Uh, Dean Ween would come to the AOD shows at City Gardens. Um, which, who else did you just mention? <laughs> uh, I, uh, Rick Rubin. Oh, Rick host. Rubin. When I would go see the Dead Kennedys for the first time, Rick used to have, he just looked like Fred Flintstone. Before that beard came in, he would always have the five o'clock shadow. And he'd have a, a jacket that said his band name, which was the Pricks at the time. And underneath it said, too late to pray. And it had like an explosion going off. And I always remember that guy. And then when he started doing interviews, I was like, it's him. It's that guy. <laughs> and it was, it was Rick, it was Rick Rubin. I've actually gone to like um, parties at the uh, NYU dorms that he was DJing at and the Beastie Boys were running around and Jimmy from Murphy's law. So there was some fun times around that era. Yeah. It's amazing where it's, it's, I, I guess, I guess it's like punk is this flashpoint that attracts, you know, obviously damaged in some cases kids but like creative kids that need somewhere to be in to find an outlet and then they find the outlet in here and this run all over the place with that energy you know all it takes is just not to feel like a hundred percent like you fit in with everybody you're going to school with you know you just feel a little bit alienated that's all it takes to find something like punk rock you know it's like the place for the you know, like the island of misfit toys you know yeah. it's where all the broken kids go <laughs> and then the reverberations of it like in that max rock and roll chapter you, you briefly mentioned donnie the punk being at that yeah house that day. and yep. i didn't know this till recently but donnie the punk is one of the people that originally coined the term pride for gay pride i did not know that at all nor did i he was one of like three nyu students or i guess just new york students i don't know what universities in particular students at the time that were kind of organizing a official event around the rising uprisings that had happened at stonewall and was okay one the, was one of the three people that coined the is credited with coining the term pride that's not something i ever knew donnie was a very serious person and uh he interviewed us for flip side and uh he just didn't get the aod sense of humor because he was he, he's been he had been through a lot you know he had he had been locked up in um military prison and um i remember when we were hanging out we were talking about just now the maximum rock and roll house. Well, uh, one of the times that we were out there staying for two weeks, Donnie, the punk was out there. And one thing I remember about Donnie, we had a party one night for our, our roadie Frank's birthday. And, uh, we had like a packed house. We just invited like every punk we saw in the area and brought up to the Tim's house. We had battalion of saints there. Jello was there. And, uh, Donnie was there and he was so proud of his punk rock t-shirts that I kid you not, he wore about, 
10 of them at the same time. And you'd see him with the shirt, then he'd walk away and he'd come back and he's got a different shirt on. And he would just peel off his shirt and put it in the back room. And now he's wearing like, you know, a uh, wasted use shirt. And then, you know, five minutes later, he's got an undead shirt. And then like, you know, five minutes later, he's got another band. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> but that's what he did. He, he would like wear, I don't know what, what the whole thing was about, but uh, he enjoyed t-shirts an awful lot. <laughs> he was ahead of a curve. That sounds like $80,000 yeah. <laughs> worth of t-shirts in today's money. <laughs> he could have been a quick change artist you know could have gone like uh america's got talent or something <laughs> that's awesome well I, there's like yeah i guess there's like so many personalities and characters as well oh for sure for sure i mean you know and some of the some of those characters rose to the top like you know people like billy milano and jimmy uh from murphy's law they're not quiet shy people you know no. <laughs> so it's like you knew you hear something <laughs> you know well it's, i find it also one of the things that it's fascinating is that it's in the second chapter where you talk with the misfits at mm -hmm. the end, you tell that story about, uh, you know, the, the melee that happens at the misfit show. And then in the end, it's revealed that it's Roger and from agnostic front and Billy yeah. at the center <laughs> of this thing. Roger probably didn't want Glenn to ever find that out <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I told him like, when we had talked about this, like the, the, the only things that Glenn finds funny or like if somebody like fell and hurt themselves or if there was some kind of violent episode. So him jumping off the stage to actually get in a fight with Roger, that's he would find that funny that years oh, yeah. later that Roger was the one that was heckling him, you know? He would have found that funny. So I, I know another thing that uh Glenn loves from stories I've heard from friends, and I know you love because you bring it up in the book, is pro wrestling. Yeah, and yeah. I, I find that's an interesting through line throughout punk too is a sort of like punk wrestling connection that... it was very diy like punk was you know i mean mm -hmm. it had a lot of similarities you know very low budget like punk rock was very underground like punk rock was i mean you'd have to the early wrestling stuff i mean before like you know the hulk hogan uh you know you know wrestlemania stuff happened you know we were going to like local high schools to see you know these matches and stuff and we would do things like root for the bad guys which would really piss everybody off around us you know it's like you know like somebody like uh the iron sheik comes out and you know we're screaming you know iran number one you know and uh the old ladies uh, they took it serious you know so it's like they give us the finger and stuff and it was fun <laughs> it's it's interesting too because they are you're right they're so similar like both are subverting their chosen mediums and pointing out the absurdity with punk it's rock and roll with wrestling it's sports right but, but the differences are one is like hey you in the crowd come up here and try it anyone can do it and the other one's like don't you fucking <laughs> don't look even the think curtain. about it yeah don't look behind this curtain kid i'm gonna break you, your nose you know i remember one time uh when i was at the college i was going to they were having wrestling there and i was like they were looking for volunteers to be security so i got to stand in front of the, the dressing room door and i'll never forget sergeant slaughter got done with like a match with kamala the ugandan giant you know kamala just grunts he doesn't speak english and then iron sheet gets done and they're all in the dressing room and they're like hey uh Kamala, you, you gonna go to that diner down the street? He's like, uh, I don't know if I want another fucking diner. 
Yeah. <laughs> that Iron Sheik's like, listen, I'm fucking hungry. I need to eat something. Let's just fucking go. <laughs> and it was like such a funny thing to see behind the scenes that they're just normal people. They're, you know. It's just a job, you know? Well, that's why I think the Misfits are like one of the few bands. There were a couple bands, obviously, that also did it where so much of punk is about breaking down that mystique and about right. here's who we really are. Yeah. You know, real people, like that kind of max rock and roll philosophy. Sure. And, and wrestling's the complete opposite of like build the character, use that to obscure the truth. Well, the and, Misfits in general were like that. They were very, um, they were not approachable. Mm-hmm. They weren't doing local New Jersey shows and putting New Jersey bands on the bill. You know, they weren't part of the scene. They were just kind of their own little entity, you know? Yeah. And uh, they would only play usually once a year around Halloween. And, uh, you know, the Misfits that people know now, it's like it was so different. Like they were like a cult band for me and my friends. Like they were like our favorite band. And it was like, we seemed like we we're the only ones that knew them back then, you know, aside from a couple record collectors that managed to get the 45s. But, you know, for us, it, it was like having the Beatles in the next town over from you, you know, it was, it was cool. I, you know, I'd, I'd be a kid, I'd ride my bike over to Jerry Doyle's house and just sit outside the gate and listen to rehearsals. You know, or go over with Steve Zing and listen, because, you know, we were friends before I met the Misfits, you know, and yeah. we were both such Misfits fans, the two of us. I mean, he got his dream, man. He's, he, you know, he works for Glenn. So, you know, being in Danzig, but uh, that dude, you know, he, he got his dream job. <laughs> well, because, yeah, I guess, were there like bands like Rosemary's Babies and the Undead? Like, would they kind of, ha- did they have like bands that were part of this Misfits Island or are they truly like just um, unto themselves? They were uh, to themselves. Uh, Rosemary's Baby did, if I remember correctly, one show with the Misfits. And that was, you know, Erie was their photographer. So that's why they got the gig. Yeah. Um, and that was at um, Gildersleeves in New York. And um, Steve's band, Morning Noise, never played with the Misfits until recently when they opened for him at, you know, at the Arena show in New Jersey, which was very nice at Glendig you know, give them that opportunity because they never had it back in the day. Oh, it's so wild too. Cause yeah, I just assumed they would have played together back in the day, but yeah, it's very yeah. much like a th- its own thing, which I like, I always thought like Misfits are simultaneously the greatest punk band ever and not at all a punk band. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the early days, I mean, you know, like that, the static age record that was for me and my friends, that was like a cassette that would get passed around and, you know, and the quality was so shitty because it got transferred a billion times over, but we knew those songs, you know, for years and years and years, you know, and I really love that era of the Misfits, like, you know, the, the pre Doyle era, you know, the pre walk among us era. I thought that was like one of the, like static age. If it came out when it was supposed to, and I think it was like 78, something like that, it would have been one of the best punk rocker punk rock records ever made at the time you know yeah, it's wild to think about it coming out then how different it yeah was yeah yeah for sure it's it may have changed like what the misfits became i don't know i i never really cared too much for like the cartoony aspect they got a little later on you know mm-hmm. you know it's a little bit too comic book or you know for me i don't know well, it's like you said earlier, it's like the kiss of punk and you can well, see Jerry always wanted to be the punk rock kiss. Uh, that's what he shot for. And God bless him. He's got it now. Huh? 
Yeah, they got into pro wrestling and they became the punk rock version of Kiss. I think that's yeah. all the check marks on the on the list of what to do. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> kind of, kind of. Um, you talk about it in the book, but you did play on one of the all time great uh, humor institutions of Uncle Floyd. Mm. That must have been. Was that like something that was like a dream leading up to it too for you a little bit, or was it? We had tried to get on that show for years, um, and. I don't know why it never happened, but our break came when uh, Randy, Randy now who books City Gardens in Trenton, took over booking the show, and he got us in uh, Diglo Abortions and about you know five punk bands in a row on the show. For it, I mean, we grew up with Uncle Floyd. For us, you know, that was part of like as big as punk was. Uncle Floyd was just as big for us. You know, the whole tri-state area, because we found out about so many bands from watching the Uncle Floyd show. You know, that show was on when I was a kid in, in junior high school. And you could turn on that show and, you know, there's Steve Bader's one day or the Ramones or David Johansson or like a ton of local bands. You know, the Colors, and all the Bees and all these bands that, you know, you only find records of. You know, for a lot of money on Discogs now, they, you know, they they played on that show. So I always wanted to be on that show. I'm glad it finally happened. Uh, colors are super underrated, too. That band's fucking awesome. Yeah, Colors were great. Man, there, there was a great power pop scene in that area, the Colors and the Speedies. Yes. You know, I, I, I loved all of them. But my favorite was Nasty Facts. From Love Brooklyn. Nasty Facts. Love. They were, uh, man, that that was like, that scratched my musical itch, man. I, their record is like one of the best uh, three songs that just club you over the head with youthful exuberance and hooks. Perfect playing. Just a great record. There was like the Dots, too, I guess, or another kind of power pop band from that era yep. as well. There felt like there was this sort of really forgotten about um the power pop moment before like New York hardcore, I guess really truly takes over. Yeah. And it was going side by side for a while there too. Like in New Jersey, we had a place called the dirt club and you know, dirt club slowly started having hardcore shows on Thursday nights, but all the other nights were like power pop bands. I, that's where like the smithereens started in that scene. And um, they put out like two compilations one was called Hardcore Takes Over, which was a, a hardcore comp. But the first one was Live at the Dirt, and it's got, like, the colors are on there and the bounce and all these, like, little-known power pop bands. It's a great comp. Really good. Both those comps are fantastic. And I think yeah. that Hardcore Takeover cover image has been used as for a bootleg cover as well. Yeah, that's my friends uh, Andy and Harpo from uh, Nibla <laughs> Kenbane. Yeah. <laughs> Two of uh, my oldest friends. Well, there's, I guess that's the whole other thing is that headache records scene that kind of yep. pops up too. Yep. That later. came up uh, yeah, around um, late eighties. Uh, there was a club popped up in Jersey called the pipeline. And that became like uh, a central point for the entire scene. They had all kinds of great shows here. Everybody from like traveling hardcore bands like DOA to early, uh, techno bands like Nine Inch Nails before anybody would book them would play there, you know. So it had a great, great scene, and uh, it was another uh, good example of like a punk rock club in the middle of the worst fucking neighborhood because it's right in the projects in Newark, you know. And it's like you walk a block away, 
yeah, you're not going to have a good time, no. you know? Yeah. So like, you know, but we were a compact little unit and just stayed on our block, you know, and it was a great place. Though. Fun times. It feels like towards the late eighties, also hardcore begins to change it, and it like, it happens in New York. Uh, I guess famously you have like sort of like the CBGB scene, which when CB shuts down, you have the ABC, you know, Rio thing pop up and then right. other whole sort of scenes that kind of pop up in the wake. Did you, obviously you guys kind of st- break up at 88 by the time 88 rolls around. Did you feel that already happening? Actually, we didn't break up till 91. Oh, really? Yeah. 91. Sorry. Yeah. We didn't break up till like 91. Did you already see that beginning to happen? Like, could you see it in New Jersey too? Oh yeah. Um, you know, for us, there was a couple things that were obvious. We overplayed the hell out of our area. You know, 10 years of being in a band, people get sick of you after a while. Yeah. Second thing was when that whole youth movement happened, like the youth to today bands and stuff like that, that and, and the more hardcore stuff like the biohazards, we started going back to our punk rock roots and, and kind of withdrew from the thrash and went more into power pop and punk for our record cruising with Elvis and Bigfoot CFO. Now we alienated a fuckload of fans by doing that too, you know, but we, we kind of knew that was going to happen, but we did what we wanted to do because that's what we set out to do with the band. Anyway, we, we always said, if it stops being fun, we're going to quit because that's we, the only reason we wanted to do it was to have fun. And I feel like that's the natural life cycle of a hardcore band. Like at a certain point, you're going to have to, change your sound or 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 just because the scene will change and you won't necessarily feel like you fit in anymore sure and and if you're a band like you know like we put out humongous fungus among us we played as fast as we could possibly play where do we where do we go from there you know i mean we get faster or do we stay the same that would be boring we were all starting to learn our instruments around that time too i mean you know when we went to record humongous fungus we had just gotten back from a three and a half month tour and went like four days after coming home, went right into the studio, you know? And that's why we're so goddamn fast on that record because we had been playing every night for three and a half months. It's a perfect time to record. But um, after that, we started listening to stuff like the Avengers and the Dickies and the Monkees. And, and there was less and less hardcore stuff on our, uh, on our drives, you know? So I yeah. think it was a natural progression to kind of get away from the thrash stuff a little bit, you know. We de- and we were at a weird point that not a lot of bands were ever in. After Humongous, like every metal band, I mean, every metal label wanted to sign us, you know. Every yeah. crossover label, Metal Blade, Megaforce, every one of them was trying to sign us, and it's like we we're not. We're not like that crossover band, you know. It's like I, I'm. I, I like Slayer and Metallica and Anthrax, but I don't want to be that kind of band. I'm a punk rocker, and there's a big difference in that and and the thrash metal stuff, you know. At least to me, at the time, there was. And you know, could we have sold out? Yeah, yeah. Could have changed our, you know, where we are now, probably. But would I feel good about it? Probably not, you know. When it's not like it for any of the bands that did kind of go and sort of chase that direction. I don't, I can't think of too many that it really like worked for that. That's the sound that they're known for today. And that's right. Like Agnostic Front tried it, but 
you know, if they went back to the their roots, right, in the long run. Yeah. You know, yeah. and there was a lot of it. You know, some bands tried it and didn't work out too good for them, like Discharge. Woo! <laughs> Man, I remember seeing them at the Ritz in New York City. I've never seen so much garbage thrown at a band <laughs> in my entire life, dude. <laughs> and they came out with the long hair and, like, the Iron Maiden that was we, it, man. It's interesting. Really? Let's go on. Sorry. No, I was just going to say they just uh, they destroyed the hearts of like every skinhead in the audience that day. <laughs> it's funny because you see it happen with the Boston bands too around yeah the same era. Yeah, they were they were all into like I think it was like people like John Sox and uh, from the FUs and some of the older guys that were into Ozzy and Black Sabbath, and I think that's how that whole thing started happening. But yeah, they 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 all went off the deep end, <laughs> you know, with the metal thing, you know, and it and the records that they all did that were more of the metal influence, they all kind of sucked, you know. I mean, uh, if you're gonna listen to an SSD record you're not going to put on the last one, you know, you're, you're going to put on, you know, the first two albums were fucking killer, you know? Yeah. They're, they're, they're uh little perfect. Just, yeah. And I, I guess that's like, you're saying like, once you've done, once you've achieved your own perfection, like where do you go with your sound? And these moments, that depends on how good of a musician you become, I guess, you know? Yeah. There's very few bands though, to think of that, kind of kept the name and changed the sound that didn't wind up pissing off the fan base. Melvins yeah. maybe, but the Melvins, I guess, never really had a sound that you could pin down. Right. They, they were like their own thing, you know, and that's why they've, I mean, they were grunge before there was grunge. So they have outlasted everything at this point. Good guys too. I'm, I'm in touch with Buzzo all the time. Yeah. Very, very, uh, very important band and obviously a band that never got bad and just continued to kind of like just uncompromisingly do things on their own terms. But I, but it's, it's hard to do that. It's hard to think that like, yeah, the yeah. Right thing. yeah, that's, that's it. You know, we, we, I remember it was probably around 87 that we first started hearing people say play faster at our shows. And, you know, it's like the longer we went on, that was like, it was like the rallying cry of our audience, play faster, play faster. And our stuff purposely started slowing down because of that, you know? It's like, yeah, <laughs> we already played fast. <laughs> well, I think Black Flag's the one that gets labeled for doing it, or like the one that gets pointed to, but I think every band, that's your natural reaction when people are screaming at you to do something. You're like, well, you're going to, of course, lean to the opposite. Right, exactly. And, and AOD were all about, like, choosing the... Um, path of most resistance <laughs> we like we liked taking the piss out of things you know it's like we we would play cbgb's matinee shows and our guitar player bruce would be in his underwear you know yeah. and these guys are trying to like stage dive and mosh around them and he's just in his underwear <laughs> you know it's like i there was something to be said about being purposely funny you know what i'm saying yeah, yeah. because we could amuse ourselves a lot and we did amuse ourselves a lot and sometimes at idiots expenses which were great you know it's like i like when people don't realize you're being made fun of you know it feels like new york uh around like 85 86 there's a lot of bands that are doing faster hardcore like new york city mayhem and i guess scared straight and yeah uh, like pre-sod stuff like it felt like there was a sort of like a, a hardcore thrash non-crossover crossover thing yes um 
There was uh, some bands that went back early on. I remember uh, uh, Leeway, one of the first hardcore bands that was metal influenced in in our scene, like early on. Uh, and you know, later on, I mean, once once the the crossover scene happened, like the whole aesthetics of the CBGB scene kind of changed too. You know, yeah. And it's funny because AOD. One of our matinees, I think maybe like 84, was the first time that the guys in Anthrax ever went to a hardcore show. And I remember being introduced to them, and Scott was like terrified. He, he was completely into it. Like he, he so wanted to go into the pit, but he was so scared that he was going to get the shit kicked out of him that he just stayed by us, by our merch area. He's like, I'm just going to watch from, from down here. And, and I saw him come to like, you know, later shows like Agnostic Front and gradually he got braver and braver. And there were people that said, hey, listen, nobody's going to fuck with you, you know, and they were the insider people. So he, they were cool. You know, yeah. we had plenty of guys in the scene with long hair in the pit and it wasn't like skinheads were fucking them up. It wasn't that kind of thing, you know, but a lot of the fights came from just people being idiots, you know, being too aggressive or hitting a girl on the dance floor or something. You know, I remember one fight happened when a singer of a band threw a beer bottle into the crowd and it broke right either on or near Vinny stigma. And they chased this band outside the club and beat the crap out of them. And uh, years later, that band would be known as Social Distortion. So it was Mike Ness. And uh, Mike Ness got the crap beat out of him at CBGB's for throwing a bottle at Vinny Stigma. That's early, uh, early days, 84 maybe. Yeah, it, it, it feels like there's few people that would be worse to wind up hitting with a bottle in <laughs> Yeah, I, I've seen some bands, I think might have been Fang. One of the San Francisco bands got chased, like the whole band got chased out by the entire audience that wanted to beat them up. I don't, I was sitting outside at the time. I don't even know what the hell happened. I just remember the band locking themselves in their van and everybody smacking on the windows. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, New York was always an interesting place. Yeah, because like New York, it was... You might get robbed by the people that just happen to be around the venue at the yeah. show, or you might get robbed by someone at the show. Or... Yeah, I've seen all kinds of shit. And I mean, we've had to come inside because of gunshots, you know, that area where the A7 Club, it was literally the worst fucking neighborhood in all of New York, mm -hmm. you know? It's now it's like Starbucks and people with their strollers and kids and shit. But in those days, Tompkins Square Park at night, you did not go in there unless you were copping drugs or, you know, you had a death wish, you know, kid like me, a suburban kid from New Jersey would not walk around those streets by, by myself. I, you know, the guys in AOD were older than me. So like Paul was always kind of like looking out for me when, and you know, if I had to go someplace, he would make sure that there was always a couple people, you know, if we were going to the car or something to grab equipment, you know, we just wouldn't walk alone, you know? It's amazing how that neighborhood is also such a storied place for punk rock. Going back to that first sort of punk scene to the A7 scene to that last Gigi Allen show where he's yeah. wandering around that neighborhood 
after the yeah. set, right? Trying to get away from people. And it's like, <laughs> it was just something about that neighborhood prior to now where I guess there's no real venues that can afford to be there anymore. But that just seemed to be a magical, <laughs> scary place for punk. It was. I mean, the one thing that made it cool was that you knew that if you were there, you're okay because there were enough people always around outside and some of our crowd were pretty intimidating looking, you know, but I mean, even, even in a seven, I talk about this in the book, I was on the dance floor. I think it was for Reagan youth and a seven was the size, like a living room. It was really small. And I was doing the little circle pit with everybody and somebody like sucker punched me from behind and it was like this little Spanish guy. And I like got in his face like, what the fuck, dude? And Jimmy from Murphy's Law grabs me and pushes me over to the other side of the room. And he whispers in my ear, don't fuck with that guy. He works for the Hitman, who's a local Puerto Rican drug gang in the neighborhood. And the dude had a machete hanging out of the back of his belt loop. And I didn't know it at the time. Now, I'm thinking I'm being all fucking trying to stand my ground but the, this little dickbag from suburban New Jersey could have gotten killed that night, you know? Yeah. And it's like, sometimes you just have to take a step back and really appreciate where you are at all times and, and, and be concerned for your own safety, you know? And I learned that that night, you know, because that could have turned out very poorly for me, you know? It, it is such a and I say this almost every episode now, but so forgive me, but it's almost like this double helix of things that are happening or multiple helixes of things that are happening at the same time. And punk is this place where worlds that would not otherwise converge. Oh, absolutely. Converge, you know, and yeah, like people from different experiences and bringing that experiences into the place. And occasionally things get out of balance and, you know, scenes get too heavy and too violent or get too removed from the reality or different things happen. But when it's all working perfectly, this is a place where everyone can kind of get together and be. Absolutely. There was something communal about it. And there was a camaraderie that, Hey, we might not like that guy, but if that guy's getting fucked with by somebody that's not part of our crew, we're going to have his back, you know? Yeah. And there was, there was, there was that kind of mentality and you had to have that mentality because there was too many people that really wanted to mess with us, you know? So the other band from New Jersey that I think crossed over a little bit more with some of the New York bands is Mental Abuse. Did they? Okay. Were they a band that you guys had a lot of run-ins with? Or oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, we knew them very well. Uh, we covered uh, Sockwoman on on one of our EPs, the Mental Abuse song, and um, Sid Sludge, their singer, used to be in a group called the Out Group, if I'm not mistaken even before mental abuse. So he's been around since the punk days, but yeah, they're, they're, um, they're uh, legendary in our state. You know, uh, we had a great radio station, uh, WFMU and the Pat Duncan show. And Pat would play all the local bands. So it really gave the scene a, a boost because he would even play cassette demos you know, so if you had some new band that just started and you can get a boombox into a re rehearsal room and record it, you're going to get on Pat Duncan's show and you're going to get heard in the tri-state area, you know? Yeah. And mental abuse got played a lot. Uh, Pat liked them a lot. So they were like one of the bands that everybody knew. For me, that station was where I first heard The Best Show, which is one of my favorite comedy kind of radio shows. And But like, yeah. 
there's this sort of comedy thing that I associate with stuff that's related to punk in New Jersey and hardcore and a sense of humor that these bands have. And it's almost like, like the AOD DNA that kind of permeates it, all this stuff. But it's really because that's the way our friends are. I mean, we bust balls and we're sarcastic assholes and we like, we like fucking fun, you know? And uh, I think, it was just a lot of like-minded people in our state. We might have influenced some people to have their band kind of be like that. But, you know, when we're hanging out, that's that's the way we kind of all were, you know? Yeah. There, of course, there's some more serious people. But, you know, for the most part, it's like everybody just wanted to have a good time and party, you know? Didn't take anything too serious, you know? Well, in the book, you talk about playing in Detroit a couple times with the promoter Scary Carrie. And I think yeah. it's the show at Greystones that uh, with the asexuals that John Kastner actually talked about when he was on the show, uh, that they when they played that show with you guys there. And I love that Detroit scene around that time. There's a lot of weird, freaky local bands from yeah. that scene around then. I wonder if you played with any any local bands you remember from back then or any weird happenings. <laughs> um, I remember playing like the first time we played a, a bowling alley with battalion of saints this was even before scary carry uh had booked us and we played with a band called like manimals they were like misfits but with like they also had the muscles like the misfits but they were kind of a little more metal uh one of the worst were... records of all time that manimals lp <laughs> you know what i'm talking about <laughs> oh, absolutely incredible yeah yeah uh they i remember them uh, then when we started playing like um, the Greystone, dude, I don't. I remember playing there with a a band called Sloth, but they were from like New York. I don't remember who like the local Detroit bands were at the time. To be honest with you, I mean we didn't get to play with any of the legendary like you know process of elimination bands there or anything. You know, I would have liked to have played with Negative Approach, you know, in Detroit or something. You know, that would have been cool. There's but this like to... oh go on sorry. I was going to say, I did get to see the, the Process Tour, though. And, oh, that's uh, an amazing tour. Yeah, it was uh, Agnostic Front's very first show was opening up for the Process of Elimination Tour at 2 Plus 2 in New York City. They're horrible. Yeah. It was before <laughs> Roger. Yes. And uh, man, they were so comical because they were all just scene kids, you know? Vinny hired these guys for the band because he liked the way they danced, okay? <laughs> so nobody really knew how to play. And I remember they had, I think, might have been Robbie Crip Crash from Cause for Alarm playing drums for him back then. And he's just doing that mosh beat. And Vinny and the bass player and the singer, John Watson, throw down their instruments and just start moshing into the crowd with just a drummer playing. So it's like there's only a drummer on stage and like the band is in the pit. I thought that was the funniest thing I ever fucking seen. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, you'll be, yeah, because like later on in Detroit, there's Depression Records with Boom and the Legion of Doom. Oh, uh, I know Boom. Yeah, he yeah. lived in Jersey for a while. Oh, really? Yep. Yes, he played. He played in a lot of different bands too, right? Like later on, I think he did Plainfield, maybe. Or Don't know. Like I remember him like hanging out with those guys, Andy and Harpo from the Hardcore Takes Over cover. Uh, I think he might have played in a band uh, called New Jersey's Finest for a little bit with them when he was there. Oh, that's but, uh, wild! Hey, I remember huh. Boom. 
<laughs> that's awesome apparently they used to pick up roadkill on the way to shows and then show up and throw like dead deers around the pit and, uh, all sorts of I'm, craziness. I'm glad i missed that one i do remember <laughs> i do remember uh the feeders you know the legendary feeder show at, at gilman street that was because it's you cr- guys and no effects that play that show right no no it wasn't no effects it was aod and mr t experience Oh, and Fat Mike he, said it was fucking him that played it. That fucking liar. Uh, son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, go on. Tell me, please. This is one of the most storied shows ever. Okay, this is funny because we're coming to play Gilman Street, and Tim Yohan is booking it. And I, I'm very good friends with Tim at this time. And he's like, who do you want to have open for you? And I was thinking about it, and I was like, well, I, you know, I just got that Mr. T experience record. I, I like them. He's like, okay. I was like, well, you know, I know that band, The Feeders, just moved to San Francisco. He's like, yeah, but I, I'll, I'll let you know in advance. They never, ever play live. To get them to play is like pulling teeth. I was like, he says, but I'll try. And he calls me back a couple of days later. He's like, hey, they said they'll do it. And I was like, oh, awesome. All right. So I'm like, oh, this is great. I finally get to see The Feeders. I love this band. And this was the most fucked up show I've ever been to in my life. It starts off where their singer, Frank Discussion, comes out and he's got a dead dog wrapped around his neck and a dead cat on a noose that's hanging off his jacket. Now, we're talking like Gilman Street, Maxim, Rock and Roll, PC, Capital, the fucking world here. Right off the bat, people are going fucking ape shit. And he takes the dog off and he said... Lassie's come home and he throws it into the pit and then they start playing. Okay. So now it's like, it's already starting up and there's a bunch of girls start coming on stage and they're trying to grab the mic from him and he's grabbing the mic back and they're throwing water at each other. He does a show. Now Frank discussion is bald and on top of his head, he's got live cockroaches glued upside down. So their little legs are moving all over his head. And this just gets, gets better and better. Jello had come to see us. Biafra's at the show because we're friends with him. They bring Jello's ex-wife, Ninochka, up, who had just left Jello for a frank discussion from the feeders. She cleaned out his bank account, by the way, and took off with Frank. So now they bring her up there, and like Jello's in fucking tears and leaves the fucking place. And then the last song, they have this big gigantic basket on the stage and like nobody knew what the fuck the basket was about they pull off the cover of the basket and there's a guy spit and sputtering he's crippled and he's in a wheelchair and he's spazzing out and uh they went into this on basket case i think and it just devolved into chaos and this gigantic like um audience versus the band debate and you know i remember frank discussion saying the animals were already dead we got them from the spca and the crowd's like get off the stage go away but the whole thing is on video Uh, tim recorded the whole thing and it's on youtube you can can watch the whole thing i think parts of it are i think they've taken down the whole video now and it's just uh, oh that sucks Uh, okay because i first saw that in the research pranks video where Frank Discussion has a segment, and they've got clips of the video in that, and it was, okay. you know, existed on the tape trading circuit amongst uh, tape trader punk fans for a long time. But yeah, that is one of the most. Well, is the feeders, Yeah, the feeders in general, like, are just one of those bands where 
it, it's it's just too punk for its own good. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But uh, yeah, that was that was one of the craziest shows that we ever did. Uh, you know, we still have people talking about that one. I, you know, I ran into uh, Matt Freeman from Rancid years and years later, and you know, I introduced myself to him. He's like, "Dude, I saw you guys." with the feeders and i was like oh my god you're at that show <laughs> and uh him and uh the singer of rancid tim both worked for gilman they had to clean up the fucking place that day <laughs> yeah so, it's it's wild when you think about all the punk venues that have come and gone and then you think about all the insanity that has happened at the gilman and so oh, yeah it's so oh, yeah yeah right crazy crazy like, a, story about tim finding a dead baby there i never heard that before yeah this is a bleak one. Anyway, this has been uh, awesome, Dave. And anytime you want to come back on this podcast and talk about any of this stuff, please know the door is always open. Well, excellent, man. And I'm I'm glad you like the book. And anybody that wants to get it, go to dewolf.com and uh and pick up a copy. I'm working on the screenplay now. It's gonna be a movie. Thank you, Dave, for coming on the show. And hopefully we'll get to do a part two with Dave at some point in the future because there's a lot more to talk about. This book is fantastic, and uh, I recommend you go out there and pick it up wherever you can. If it's Tuesday, this must be Walla Walla, the wacky history of Adrenaline OD. And this was put out by DeWolf, Die Wolf Publishing. And uh, you can get it uh, online. I'm sure you can find it everywhere. Great book. All right, on to the next episode. And boy, do I have a great episode for you coming up. My buddy, my pal, and I are reconnecting after uh, a few, been a few years since we had last spoken. And my gosh, what a ride it's been for him. Kurt Vile is on the show. We talk about all sorts of stuff, including the tour we did together and that's a good one. I can't wait for you to hear it. And that is coming up on the next episode. Now, remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights. And stop hating violence towards people of different faces, faiths or races. And I know I say this all the time, and this might seem corny to some people, but it's because this isn't politics this is just basic human rights stuff and it's scary right now looking at people trying to pull things backwards and, and push things back to a different time and place so if there's organizations around you that are doing positive work to bring about a better world get involved donate your 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 time or you know if you have money maybe they need money because there's a lot of groups that are doing a lot of hard work right now and trying to raise money for a lot of great causes and I'm sure there's some in your community that need your support. Speaking about, uh, sorry, speaking of needing your support, uh, do something in for your uh, punk scene you know, start a band, start a fanzine, start, start a website. No one knows websites anymore. Zines are back, but websites that that's a dying art. You know, we talked about all the great websites on the last episode, kill from the heart and, break my face and there's just a there was a lot of them back then um so maybe start a website or start a podcast there's too many of these but start a podcast too but just do something because this culture gets better when you contribute to it and anyone 
can contribute to it. That's what makes this so amazing. Sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. And I've seen it with my own eyes. That does perform miracles for people. And people can live in live on even through a tragedy like you passing away and then harvesting your organs. But you're not you're dead, so you don't really need them. It's not like that Monty Python sketch that was ripped off by you can't do that on television. Like wholesale they ripped off that sketch. Try meditating. I know people have been saying this for thousands of years, and there have been people that have been very well aware of this practice and know far more about it than I do, but I find I get benefit even with my limited knowledge about it. So try it. It takes a couple times before it starts feeling good, but then you find these things just enter your normal life, and yeah, yeah, try it. Who knows where it goes? Anyway, thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.